Hello, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dr. Lisa Ramirez, Director of Community and Behavioral Health for the Metro Health System School Health Program and a proud member. It's June 16th, and you're with a virtual City Club Forum. Generations of racial injustice and systemic racism impact mental health. These last few weeks, the overlapping crises of the COVID-19 pandemic, the deaths of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd and Rashard Brooks at the hands of police and the worldwide protests that followed have taken a particularly devastating toll on the black community and their mental and emotional health, further exacerbating pre-2020 disparities. The limited access to coping resources during this period of excessive stress is endangering black lives even further. Black people are over seven times more likely to live in areas with limited access to mental health care. There is a dire shortage of black mental health providers and black Americans are 20% more likely to report serious psychological distress. Today, we'll talk with several local experts and leaders about the mental health needs of our black community and provide resources and practices for surviving through this triggering time. Before we get to the conversation, I want to thank the City Club's generous members, sponsors, and donors who support these virtual forums. For a full list, visit cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting their work by making a contribution or becoming a member at cityclub.org. Today's forum is sponsored by the Woodruff Foundation. We appreciate their support of City Club programming. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Five four one five seven nine four. You can also tweet them at the City Club and we'll work them in. And now to our panel. <laughs> Joining us today are Dr. Shamara Arkey. She's the co-chair for the Board of Trustees for Shooting Without Bullets, a professor of Pan-African Studies at Kent State University and the founding curator of Sankofa Circle. Good morning, Dr. Arkey. Good morning. Thank you for having me. We have the Reverend Courtney Clayton Jenkins, senior pastor and teacher at the South Euclid United Church of Christ. Good morning, Reverend Jenkins. Good morning, so excited to be here, thank you. We also have Ms. Habiba Grimes, CEO of the Positive Education Program, also known as PEP. Good morning, Ms. Grimes. Good morning. And Dr. Marcina Murray, a clinical psychologist and director of behavioral health for the foster care program at the Metro Health System, an assistant professor of psychiatry at the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. Good morning, Dr. Murray. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you all for being with us this morning. And I wanna open the forum today, our conversation, by asking why are each of you here with us this morning? Why is this an important topic? Who'd like to start us off? Ms. Grimes, I see you unmuted. Would you like to start? <laughs> I desire a better world for Black children, especially Black children who have my heart and, and have been um, the focus of my work. Um, but by inspiring children and giving children hope, we set the, the stage for future generations to have hope and continued resiliency. Um, so that's what's bringing me here today is, is, a, is a strong desire, a conviction that Black people will experience fullness, 
and healing um, and personal liberation while we work on achieving societal liberation. I guess I'll offer up next. Um, I have been concerned as a pastor about what I'm gonna say are the blankets of trauma. Uh, we've always been a traumatized people, but we are seeing waves of trauma with COVID, waves of trauma, certainly um, finding resistance as we march, but we're also witnessing death and brutality because of social media. Um, where it's not the movies, it's not uh, play, it's real. And our exposure to that uh, means that we have a responsibility uh, as it relates to how we care for ourselves. Uh, I am a pastor who is very open about their own challenges with mental um, health, uh, my own struggle with depression. I preach often on that or on anxiety. Um, and I think that I'm here, I, I wanna be here because I care deeply about um, that. And I think that oftentimes the church neglects the reality um, of mental health. And so I'm hopeful to contribute to our discussion and dialogue today, not just what I think, but also what I know and what I live as one who tries to protect their own mental health uh, in the midst of all we're experiencing. Thank you. I'll piggyback off of that, absolutely 100%. I think in order for us to start addressing what's going on, we have to recognize what's happening with the trauma that Black people are experiencing um, through social media, through just repeatedly having to see people that look like you be victimized and be murdered, um, and the impact that, of that on our mental health and not only for us, but also for our kids. So for the youth, um, the impact of that trauma. So while we might not know exactly what's gonna happen, we do know we, there's a lot of good research and things that we do know about what is the impact of this type of trauma, being traumatized over and over repeatedly, the impact of that accumulation of trauma um, that sadly at this point, we are not able to escape on our mental health and, and our physical health. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Murray, for talking about the, the, the way that we are encompassing trauma, the way that Black folks have experienced that. Um, you know, one thing that I want to start our conversation with is that the trauma that our mom endures while she is, um, while we are in the womb that is passed down to us through our mitochondrial DNA. Uh, there's a book by Dr. Joy Debris that talks about post-traumatic slave syndrome. And so it's a scientific fact that the trauma that has happened to our people over the course of 400 plus years, throughout our travels around the world, throughout the diaspora, that's still with us, in addition mm -hmm. to these videos that we are seeing every day. And so our role as Shooting Without Bullets is to help young people process that. And the young people that we work with process that through art and through creativity. And that is the first step in their healing. So admitting that they're living in this world with all of these things that are outside their control, but understanding that they can control themselves and how they're reacting and that action that they have can impact another person, another young person in their community. Thank you, Dr. Arkey, for bringing us maybe with a developmental perspective. So we know, right, that even from conception that our Black youth are at higher risk for health outcomes and especially 
for devastating mental health outcomes. Dr. Murray, perhaps you could talk with us a little bit about what's, what is developmentally happening to Black youth with identity, with high rates of, you know, we have new data from the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, our prevention health partners over at Case showing us that Black youth are more likely to have attempted suicide within the last 12 months than their white counterparts, right? What is the stress that's happening in Black youth's lives that is leading to this sense of despair? And, and, and suicide attempts. Yes, so Dr. Mears, I wanna thank you for bringing that up because a lot of people don't know that. And it's really important that we do know that and talk about those things. So black youth are killing themselves at a higher rate. It's, it's doubled in the last, since 2001, the rates for females have doubled and that's super concerning. So when I think from a developmental perspective, what's happening, of course, trauma is one of the things that's happening. There is a link between PTSD experiencing trauma and suicide, suicidality. The reason especially is that whenever kids are repeatedly experiencing these traumas, it impacts the way they develop. So imagine something, whatever is the most scariest thing to you. I don't know, for me, say it's a big, huge snake. It's going to bite me. It's going to, it's trying to eat me. It's trying to wrap itself around me and take my life. Um, and I never know what it's gonna, when it's gonna strike, where it's at, what's, what's it gonna do. Um, and so imagine being in that constant state of fear. Um, and that's what, what a lot of our black youth are experiencing. The snake might be in their home, it's in their communities, it's everywhere you go and you never know when it's gonna come out. So being that experience, living that experience, what happens is you're always on a heightened awareness. It literally changes your brain development experiencing this trauma, your hormonal development, you have elevated levels of adrenaline and cortisol, all those things. You know these things from research. This is what trauma does. And so we know that that's proven. And so, and the more trauma you have, the more the experience is, it's a cumulative effect. So the more trauma you have, the more, um, the bigger the impact. Um, so when you think about suicidality, that's what we have to think about. And then two other things that are, I want to say is that it's also the trauma, but it's also another risk factor for suicidality is hopelessness. And at times when we see the things that Black youth and Black people are taking in repeatedly over and over and over, it, 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 it let's us see why they might be feeling hopeless and leading to those uh, more higher rates of suicide attempts. Mm -hmm. So really hopelessness and the trauma are, are two really big parts of it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I was gonna add, um, you know, I think one of the other pieces here that's really critical um, is as we talk about um, youth and how critical that is to mental health. Um, I want to be honest that um, if we as adults are not in touch with our own mental health, if we as adults um, are unable to process our own trauma um, and to know the proper steps to take, it can be very difficult for us to then help young people 
Um, you know, here at South Euclid United Church of Christ, where I serve, um, we have wonderful, wonderful programming um, on a lot of avenues to help our young people process. And they have been processing um, in groups and processing together midweek. Um, but like this upcoming week, this is something that's upcoming week, um, we're actually hosting uh, a forum for adults. Um, and so, you know, as one who stresses the importance um, of counseling, stresses the importance that medication is not a stigma. Um, I think it's important that we also look at many of our adults, because I think if we can help equip them, then we help them to equip our young people um, and how we can offer those services. I mean, here at South Euclid, we put in, I think we added an additional 23% to our, uh, to our counseling budget for this upcoming year, because it, it's, even in my context as one who believes heavily in prayer, it takes more than that. It's prayer coupled with counseling. It's prayer coupled with facing these difficult realities um, and determining at some point that even your home will just have to flow in a particular type of way. Because as the adults, we, we, are, we cannot control what happens out there. We can set the tone for what happens in our home. Excellent points. So many excellent points. So a couple of things. One, you know, Dr. Murray, you hit and and Reverend Jenkins both on sort of this trauma piece. And and Ms. Grimes, I want to turn to you because I know you have been very vocal about, you know, you are an expert in trauma-informed practices. You use it in PEP, um, you know, one of the local leaders really in that area. And you've been very vocal about the fact that many of the frameworks really do not recognize racism and prejudice and bias as an inherent trauma. And I don't know if maybe you'd like to speak a little bit to that and and, and the effect that that has in not recognizing that, that aspect. Absolutely. I think like one of the core um opportunities that this conversation presents is to bring Black suffering into the light and to create an awareness of Black, specifically mental health suffering, um, because there is this um, neutrality around Black suffering, this indifference to Black suffering and um, the, the struggles that we have with mental health in the Black community um, on the part of the larger society. Right. And so we look to frameworks that have national recognition, global recognition, and we're looking for our experiences in those frameworks. And those frameworks are largely neutral on the impact of racial trauma, of um, historic and generational uh, oppression, uh, disenfranchisement, and are not always um taking into account the legacy of um, the slave trade, enslavement, and all of the historical experiences that follow after. And so it feels important to me that we change that narrative, that we um, are willing to turn to Dr. Joyce Degree and seek her, her engagement um, and the engagement of other Black scholars, Black researchers, and um, individuals who have been talking about racialized trauma for quite some time, but somehow their their um, hypotheses, their their findings, their thoughts are not included in some of these larger frameworks on trauma. 
Yeah. Um, thank you for that, Ms. Grimes. That, that's very true. There are Black scholars who have been on the line doing research on our communities um, for as long as we've been in the academy. But just like the racism and the white privilege and the white supremacy that happens in the streets every day also happens in higher ed, also happens in the academy. And, and that stifles our voice and stifles us to be able to get the resources that we need to our community. And so thinking about the frameworks and the theories and the pedagogies, and there are so many of them in ways that we can engage our young people to have them kind of address that hopelessness that was spoken of earlier. That's what we see a lot with the art that the young people began to produce in Shooting Without Bullets. Um, that's what's on them. That's the environment they live in every day. And so giving them an opportunity to not just um, teach them, so not just in a teaching and learning environment, but also in a practice environment. We provide experience, opportunity, and exposure for young people. These are the things that they're really going to need to help, that to, to help in addition to all the other things that they're doing to switch that chemical imbalance, to show them that there's another way for them. And so our work at Shooting Without Bullets does that. So in conjunction with whatever their, their outside plan is, we want to give them a space to try on and try out these new identities, which are not always welcome in their community. As we're talking about these differences in the framework, another important um, area where discrepancies happen with race is related to mental health, not just that they're missing the racial trauma, so they're missing pressure. Um, they're missing that our youth, our Black people are depressed, are sad, are hurting, or have these feelings of hopelessness. So a lot of times, especially, I'm, the, I'm a pediatric psychologist, so we're talking about youth. They're often, if a youth, if a Black youth comes and they have irritability and anger and these outbursts, they get diagnosed with a disruptive disorder versus if a white person has the same symptoms, they get diagnosed with depression. And so we just have to also step back and make sure that we're being looked at properly. There are a lot of discrepancies in mental health, but that's another one I think is really important. Um, and it uh -oh. uh oh, Dr. Marshall, you went on mute. I think. Oh, sorry. Okay. If, if I could ask Dr. Murray a question, um, as you share that, um, then what are the questions we need to be asking, right? And so as we go in, we're taking our children in, um, we're trying to get them the help they need and we don't want them. And, and I think a lot of this from what I've learned with my own son is there are particular sets of questions we need to ask even before you see our child as the parent to make sure that we are on the same page from a point of departure about what it is we're getting ready to experience. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what are the questions we need to be asking when it comes to these types of things? It's not only the questions we need to be asking, it's how we ask those questions. Okay. Um, and another part of this, I hate to keep bringing back the trauma is that a lot of times black people and our black, our youth, have this thing we call the numbing effect. Whenever you keep seeing something over and over and over and over, you're like, is is it traumatizing? They're like, no, no, not really. I mean, it's just another day. And 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 they might feel that way, but having a provider that's kind of sensitive to the fact that that's going to have an impact to you and it's gonna have a toll. And at this point you might be numb, but let me ask um, 
my questions in different ways about what you've experienced and how those things are impacting you and about your mood. And sometimes it is about interpretation. So um, having someone who's culturally sensitive enough to know that um, just because a child's acting out doesn't mean that they have disruptive behavior. It could be it could be depression or it could be anxiety or other things. And so really making sure we're looking at the whole picture. And so as a parent, I'd want to be able to kind of have a good grasp on what I think is going on so that I can appropriately articulate that to the person that um, is going to be seeing my child. I'd like to chime in here as well, because I think we have to back up and as practitioners interrogate ourselves a little bit, not a little bit, a lot about our implicit biases, our in our um, conditioning toward anti-Blackness, our conditioning to either be indifferent to Black suffering or to assume that the, the suffering we see in another person, be it economic or mental health, um, that that suffering is somehow deserved. That suffering is somehow warranted and that the condition that an individual is in is because they, they've done something wrong or they've not done something right. Um, that is um, a challenge that, that every practitioner in the mental health industry and sector and um, anyone who's seeking to help the Black community has to begin to unpack, understand the history of, of racism in our country and the history of anti-Blackness explicitly and search your heart for those biases because they will show up in diagnostics. They will show up in the care that's given or the interventions that are attempted or planned and results in re-traumatization, further harm, um, which may not be that, likely is not that practitioner's intent. But without that self-awareness and that self-interrogation, you perpetuate harm. So I'd like to, unless Dr. Arkey, did you have something you wanted to say? I just want to jump in real quick. And um, I want to bring a different perspective to this conversation because um, it sounds like a piece that I wrote as a mom a few years back, and it's called Ruminations on the Intersections of Being a Black Mommy Activist and thinking about that time where I took my two Black sons to the therapist and understanding that she has this rapport and she's been taught to work with these young people, but she hasn't been taught how to work with us as parents. Mm -hmm. She hasn't been taught um, how to consider the socio-political context in her pedagogy with her the young people that she's working with and also with us. She hasn't had any type of cultural diversity or cultural awareness training that's a part of her certification that helps her to do these things. So when you think about all of these things, it, it lends us to the systems and the institutions that we're working with. So yes, we definitely have to be on the line for ourselves and one another, but we also have to elevate that fight, elevate that to systems and institutions and begin to hold them accountable. Can I, can I add something in on that? Um, Cause that's, that's so key. Uh, and it's leading me to what I, we, we've named the uh, public traumas that we're currently experiencing, right? Around COVID, we've named that in terms of of the Black Lives Matter movement. But the silent trauma right now is white fragility. And the trauma that that is causing us, because we're talking, wonderful discussion, 
processing how we feel, asking these questions, understanding, right? Searching our own heart. Um, uh, we're talking about um, uh, anti-blackness, right? But when I, I, I'm, I'm dealing with people in my context who are um, from the gamut, I mean, literally from the hood to the corporate corner office downtown and the constant silent traumatic event is white fragility, is is white people calling and say, oh, I don't know what to do. How do I deal with this? I'm not a part of this. And what happens is we become traumatized all over again because we cannot share um, the same way we share in our kitchens, right? If the four of us, but we're on this platform and we're trying to be transparent and open, but put the four of us around a kitchen table, come on, with somebody's grandmother cooking a pot of greens. And it's going to be a whole different conversation as women, um, as mothers, as partners, whatever, whatever those boxes are that we check. It doesn't, even as a single person, um, because we live in the double consciousness and we've learned how to navigate that on a regular basis when things are quote normal, things are not normal. And so the level of white fragility that is traumatizing us to pretend, for example, in the workplace as we're on Zoom calls and things of that nature, like everything is okay. And our bosses and our leaders not acknowledging that um, just again is a silent trauma. And one of the things is, uh, I'm, I'm a millennial, I'm from the generation where the, where the, you know, the word is trigger, 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 I'm triggered, I'm triggered. Um, there does come a point, and I think this is important for Black mental health, when I have to take my own mental health into my own hands. I cannot control what my sisters say. I cannot control what my white colleague says, but I can control me. And so part of my mental health practices are setting aside my Sabbath, which has actually been the blessing of COVID because I was in a whole lot of places. I'm thankful that prior to COVID, I learned that I am empathic. So I'm not just mentally processing the trauma I'm seeing, I'm feeling it. So I was on Saturday, I went to my first protest. I haven't been at the protest because I feel all of that energy um, and it's all, and, it, and, it, and all the energy is not for positivity or for Black Lives Matter. And so like on Saturday, I felt bad that I had to go to a protest and then leave, but I had to leave. Here it is because I have to protect my mental health and I have to be sharp to the people I serve and I lead. And so I cannot expose myself to some of those things on a consistent basis. I have to say to my husband from time to time, monitor what you let in your spirit. Monitor what you let in your psyche. It can't be the news all the time. It can't be white fragility all the time. For me and particularly for my son, we do meditation early in the morning, quiet practices and activating what we call is our superpower, which is breath. But I also really just want to point out that there are very public triggers of trauma, but there are these silent, silent triggers that are out there. And if we are not aware of them and we don't discuss them, we can be ravaged by them. Mm -hmm. And I refuse to be ravaged by it. So 
Excellent point. I want to take a second to say that in a few minutes, we're going to be turning to the audience questions. If the audience has questions for any of the panelists, they can be text to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club and we'll be sure to work them in. So Reverend Jenkins, you know, I keep going back to uh, something you said earlier that says the church neglects the uh, reality of mental health, right? Yet, some of the statistics that I've read earlier are that, you know, um, black, black people are much less likely to be in an environment where there are access to mental health services. And I know Dr. Murray shared with me earlier that only 4% of our psychologists in the country are black. So here we are now where, um, I guess the question is where are where is our black community seeking support and and really how do we start to to help help where those systems start to connect to inform each other and to help support each other um, or is that even realistic and do you have any other recommendations? So I think that um, number one we need black leaders to talk about this and you know a part of our culture is you don't talk about what goes on in this house um, and part of that is what has prevented this. What would be genius, I mean, in my opinion, is to look at natural watering holes for black mental health and create funnels into more structured places that can offer assistance. Let me give you an example. The barbershop on Saturday morning <laughs> remains a place, the beauty salon, major part of our culture where we go in, we're talking about issues, we're discussing issues, and we need we need to understand, I wanna say this, is, uh, and it's key, there's a difference between venting and getting the mental health you need. Here it is, and both are key and critical to the process. We have a lot of places where folks in the black community can vent, where they can share, where they can discuss the communal impact and how they're processing their trauma. The challenge becomes that so often we do that first step and we don't have uh, what we need necessarily to move us into the next step, which is how do I deal with this? What do I do? Venting, and that I think that's the piece of, of, here you go, if you will, black fragility, that we vent enough to keep going, but healing doesn't happen, in my opinion, until we start to care for the wound. The wound needs to breathe. The wound needs to be exposed, but we've got to get the medicine in. And so I think that number one, black leaders need to be honest about our own mental health, our own struggle, because if we can do that, then people say, oh, okay, then I can process this. I can deal with this. I can face this head on. Um, you know, I shared with my congregation, I preached a sermon um, about three weeks ago called When Anxiety Attacks. It's on YouTube. Um, and I talked about taking medicine. Um, and the number of people who reached out because there's a stigma around the medicine um, of just the honesty and the transparency. And then that leads to conversations. I mean, we offer here at the church, uh, we offer mental health counseling through Reverend Gina Moore, who is a certified uh, counselor. Here it is. I want to say this, but the, the church for members of our church, we pay for the first three sessions for them. And then it's at a discounted rate to keep it going. Um, there comes a point where as in the black community, we have to put our money where our mouth is. So for me to orchestrate a 1.5, I think million dollar budget 
and to not put anything to counseling is poor leadership for me. And so at, there comes a point where we move it by put by exposure, transparency, and putting our money uh, where it is. It, you know where 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 we say this matters. Talk about black leadership. <laughs> Thank you for that, Pastor. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a South Eucharist resident and I follow Pastor and she's telling the truth. Like she's in these streets for us, for real, all the time. <laughs> so picking up on what she talked about, the natural watering holes. Yes, there are places that we have in our community because all of these other things weren't built with us in mind. They weren't designed for us to, to be utilized, right? So we've had to build these networks and these systems within our own communities. You name them, barbershop, beauty shop, places like church. This is a, a, a phenomenon that is called Pentecostal pedagogy. There's a scholar out of Columbia named Dr. Christopher Engen, and he talks about understanding who has the, the ear of the community, understanding who these people are, and how can we transform the concept of teaching and learning so that it doesn't have to happen in this standard classroom that we traditionally think? But why can't it happen at the barbershop? Why can't it happen at the beauty shop? Why can't it happen around the kitchen table like you were saying earlier? And he has these seven strategies and their seeds, and one of them is co-generative dialogues. So being able to come together as Pastor talked about, and have the conversation, assign someone to bring in the data, assign someone to bring in the Apple research, and then have that dialogue with an end to say, this is what we're going to do next, and to continue that. It can't just happen once. It can't just be one protest. One thing that I love that we're seeing right now in Cleveland is that everywhere. I just watched um, some coverage of a protest that was done on West 25th by people on rollerblades and skateboards. And it was like, oh, we're not the traditional people that you see, that you think you see at a Black Lives Matter rally, but this is the way that we win. So we've got to begin to use the things that we have in our community, those things that have sustained us. So we have to interpret them and interpret them again. For us, it becomes a double hermeneutic process. We have to think about the information that we're giving. It's not designed for us to win. And that is what we do as Black people. That is what we've always done. That's why we're still here today. But now we have a platform and we can talk about it and we can talk about it and we can show examples and we can share resources to help to amplify this message of how we get free. Thank you, Dr. Arkey. Ms. Grimes? I, just, I have to chime in because I am just um, so energized by um, Pastor Jenkins, by Dr. Arkey's words, because there are environments of healing that have cultural roots in our in our in our in American society and in the Black community explicitly that have been vehicles for healing um, traditionally, and I, I can't help but wonder how we equip those healers, because the barber, the beautician, they are healers. How do we equip them? How do we equip our pastoral community so that they are similarly inspired as, as, as Pastor Jenkins has been? How do we help them understand the science of trauma, the science of, of development, the science of, of um, mental wellness, and mobilize that 
information with the people with whom they have contact. Dr. Arki has said these systems, the institutions of, of care were not designed for Black people. In fact, they many of them were designed with anti-Black frameworks in mind. We have to own that history. We have to acknowledge that history. We have to own the history within the practice of psychology, of social work, of each of the, the mental wellness disciplines or mental health disciplines, that there are anti-Black um, theories that promulgated in the, those the history of those disciplines. So they are not places that necessarily the black community trusts. That trust should be built. Those that that history should be reckoned with. There should be a process of reconciliation, but not in order to subvert the healing that happens in those other places. How do those institutions of formal scientific theory and knowledge come together with the traditional healers in our community so that cultural institutions, arts institutions, um, and the kitchen table and the barbershop and beauty shop are equipped with the knowledge they need to continue healing in the black community. Um, one of the things that I just, I hang my hat on in everything I do is resilience and the resilience of the black community. Um, the fact that despite such a strong um, intent to crush, to, dis to destroy, that's woven into our history, learn the history, know the history, let's own it, let's be honest, let's reconcile the fact that there is a strong history of um, creating systems that either subjugate, subjugate or destroy Black life. Let's then also honor the, that legacy of resilience, of self-empowerment, of cultural creation. When we look at American society, there's so much that Black people have contributed to modern American society. And so there's this, this, this true fragility of, of life and of wellness that we have to honor, but at the same time, we also have to honor that resilience and enable it. So many excellent points. <laughs> uh, I do want to turn to some of the audience questions, um, and I may be following up with each of you about something. Just so much, so much depth here that I think we could spend an hour on each of these points themselves. But one of our um, our listeners wants to know, with knowledge that exposure to stress and suicidality puts youth at increased risk for suicide attempts. This is particularly true when a child has a parent who is stressed and maybe has a history of their own suicide attempt. What are we doing to help parents and how can we help black parents right now? I will say well, one of the things that's important to do is to build networks of support. Uh, human beings thrive in relationship to other human beings. Uh, communities of support um, where you can get some of that formal information that can be helpful to understanding the condition that you're in. Um, we've seen some beautiful revelations happen for families who learn about um, developmental trauma and how it impacts development and um, the, the future of health. So that is critical, um, but also a place where folks can have those kitchen table type moments of resonance and of uh, alignment and understanding and empathy and um, togetherness. I want to want to add in there. Um, I want to suggest that parents um, be open to pivot 
their self-care needs. Um, I think that we have historically, myself included, found great self-care in the barbershop, in the beauty salon, in the nail salon, um, you know, even, you know, glass of wine with girlfriends. COVID has prevented that. Uh, we're seeing um, even uptick still, right, uh, in, 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 in COVID cases. And one of the biggest things I had to do was to literally pivot my own self-care. Um, I had a very strict self-care ritual prior to, but it was mostly, I want you to hear this, it was mostly about people servicing me. That's in large part because I'm a public servant. So I'm always serving other people. So a big part of my self-care was allowing other people to service me. What I've had to learn, here it is, is how to service myself. And I'm not talking about my hair, I'm not talking about my nails. I am talking about as a parent, uh, I have had to learn um, things I've known but not been consistent with. Bringing back in aromatherapy, bringing back in meditation, which is different than prayer. Um, meditation is a time of silencing the mind, of acknowledging the power of breath. And in my case, acknowledging that there is divine energy circulating within me. When I find the time to pause, sometimes at night after I put my son to bed, most often in the morning by just getting up, uh, uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes before him, um, and then having the meditative practices with him as well, I am able to offer self-care that is internal, and is not dependent on anyone providing it for me. And so I wanna suggest to parents when we're looking at lowered resources, when we're, you know, because of the economy, we look at the fact that, you know, we can't hang out always in those places. Um, even now the beauty shops and barber salons are different. They don't just have people lined up and waiting. It's internal deep questions of how you care for yourself. There are salt lamps all over my house. They're in my office here. I have a whole meditative space in my office here, one at home. I want to encourage people, pivot your own self-care, learn to care for yourself. If you cannot care for yourself, it is so hard to care for other people. And COVID has taught me, I've learned that lesson of put your mask on first. It's counterintuitive as a parent. If a plane is going down, my first concern is my son. But this has taught me, I really can't put on his mask until I put on my own. To piggyback off of that self-care, I think it's really important for parents to, to do what they need to do for their mm -hmm. mental health. So whether that's self-care, going to therapy, going mm -hmm. to the barbershop, whatever it is they need to do, and the importance of that for their kids. So recognizing right. that kids are looking at you. They're seeing what you're doing. They're going to copy what you do. You cannot say, tell your kid to, oh, you need this and you that, and you're falling apart every single day. So First, we have to take care of ourselves and know that our kids are watching. Another thing that I think can be helpful for parents, because I get a question like, how do I talk to my kids about this? What, it, what, do we, what do I say? So first, you have to take care of yourself. You have to be in a good emotional space before you can even start really going in, deep into those conversations with your child. And also, when you have those conversations with your child about everything, you need to make sure that those conversations are like age appropriate. So how I talk to my child when he's five will be different than when he's 15 and six foot tall. Like, but not only that, those they'll look different, but also I need to have them all along the way. So it's not a one time conversation. So sometimes with parents, whenever conversations are difficult, you're like, oh, I said it. I did it. I'm done. 
but it needs to be an ongoing thing that you continuously have as your child um, grows and develops as well. And so really those are, those are things that are important as well for parents. Thank you, Dr. Murray. Another question that I, we were getting a lot of questions now, I don't know that we'll get to all of them, but there is a question about supporting the black LGBTQ plus population, especially now more than ever. So what advice can anybody give to the black LGBTQ plus community during this time? I would encourage people from the black LGBTQ plus community to tell the truth. Um, this is what a time for us to be in right now, looking at the March for Trans Life that happened in Brooklyn over the weekend. Um, it, it's time to tell the truth. And it's time to, um, like, you know, I tweeted about today, we we're gonna tell the truth and shame the devil. <laughs> it's time to do that though. It's time to tell what's going on behind the scenes and behind the curtain. Uh, one sister out of the West Coast, she said the veil has been lifted. We have an opportunity to amplify our voices and amplify our messages we have never before. And this is a time where people are tuned in and people are listening. So that's the advice that I wanna give to the community. Um, I also wanna tell them to hold us accountable, hold people outside of the community accountable, hold leaders accountable. If we are not reflecting back to you the things that you need to see to get freedom in your community, tell us, tell us. We need to know, the masses need to know. This is a time where we have to coalesce and come together because together is the only way that we will win. And I wanna just shout out to um, allies um, because there is an internal subcultural hierarchy that is taking place right now of, yeah, Black Lives Matter. And, you know, we're not saying anything about LGBTQ folk. I put something out the other day that just like it is an atrocity for Trump to hold his rally on Juneteenth to take away um, uh, medical protections for trans people, it, it would be hypocritical. So one of the things that as allies we can do is listen. We can close our mouths and listen to people's stories, not close our mouths as an as an act of silence, but to face the own internal culture that we have created, that we have bought into anti-Black by buying into homophobia, and that we continue the cycle and just like we're shouting Black Lives Matter because we want people to listen to us, we create an ally when we listen to our LGBTQ siblings and hear and then come to a place of how now can I partner alongside you? If I may, I just want to say too that we have to have a conversation about racism's impact on masculinity and the prioritization of hypermasculinity as a means of survival and how that displaces, how it creates danger, how it um, undermines the well-being of our LGBTQ plus folks. Um, I, 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 I want to elevate um, Dr. Arkey, your comments. Thank you for that. This we got to have some really real conversations. I feel like the nation's reckoning right now is like the tip of an iceberg that we have to just continue to dive more deeply into and understand what it is we see within the Black community and the wellness of the different um, 
communities that exist within the Black community. It is not a monolith. And there are nuances and complexities to our current situation that are about our survival from a historical perspective that have lent to a legacy of harm. So we need to have those conversations and be real about it. You know, Ms. Grimes, I want to piggyback on that, too, with actually a question that came in from our audience. Um, it says a lot of women in the black community are finally becoming aware of the importance of mental health. How do you encourage male spouses or other men in your household to seek help? <laughs> Reverend Jenkins, I see you. <laughs> um, oh, we can't hear you. You're on mute. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let my sister answer first, but I'm going to jump in there. Well, after. <laughs> You know, Black women, I mean, again, take a historical perspective. Black women have upheld the well-being of the Black community for centuries. And so it is only logical to me that we would model for our, our husbands, our lovers, our partners, our friends, our spouses, our sons, and so on, um, our brothers, that we would model the way to healing. Um, the, 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 the wheel that crushes the Black community uh, really targets Black men in ways that um, are just wholly disruptive, disruptive to the family, disruptive to the interpersonal well-being, and disruptive to the community. And so it's, it makes complete sense to me that we would first model the way and then with with transparency, with honesty, with loving compassion, bring our brothers and our partners into alignment with the well-being that we seek and that we are, are, are demanding for ourselves. Yeah, I want to just shout out that um, to kind of piggyback off of this. Um, first of all, that hyper-masculinity contributes to this notion of uh, if you need counseling, that might be a weakness, right? It, it, it's not even really accepted among Black women. Um, we're, we've moved into that, and I'm praying that men will, will trail right along in that. Uh, I've been seeing my therapist for nine years, um, every two weeks. Um, and, and honestly, um, and I think a lot of this has to do with my own stuff, like really coming now to a place of starting to see the full results and benefits of this because you have to plant these seeds. Right. And then it was just like maybe about three years ago, like I came in, like all the light bulbs were going off about what I needed to face. And then I saw some changes and shifts in my husband. And it started with me saying, like, you need to go to counseling. You need to go to counseling. You need to go to counseling. Have you considered counseling? Um, he was very resistant to that. I'm good. Like, he tried it. Now that doesn't work. And trying to help him understand, you have to find the right counselor. This is not a one-size-fits-all. Uh, maybe you want a male. Maybe you want a female. Maybe you want someone who's Black. Maybe you want somebody who's not Black. Like, But it's not, don't be... Like go find the doctor just like you would anybody else who can care for you. Um, and then, you know, he was so resistant. And so I just kind of got quiet about it. And in, in my tradition, I started praying about it. And I started laying hands on him at night while he sleep. Like, you know, that he would be, oh, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, you know, he would be open and receptive. And eventually, like one day, like we got this terrible argument. He's like, and I made an appointment with the counselor. You know, and he's been going um, for the last year or so. Um, and the thing I've had to, to 
repeat to him time and time again, is that the best gift, if there's any black men watching, I want you to hear this, the best gift that my husband can give me and my son is a whole him to work on his own wholeness and healing and health, that him being the best him, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, is the best gift he can give to me as his partner and to our son who is who doesn't have the words to articulate the anxiety, who doesn't have the words, right, at six, um, and struggles with his own unique learning needs to overcome those things. And so um, we are very thankful that we have a lot of men here who come and get counseling here at the church. And so it's not a, it's not a stigma because they see other men going in and out doing it. They don't know what they're talking about. What they talk about in there is their business. We practice HIPAA and confidentiality. But helping the men or like men, when I would finish preaching, they would come through the back door and they'd always say this, uh, I'm going to go cry in my car now. You know, that word really touched me. And I'm like, you know, if you want to cry in your car, like, it's cool, man. But if there's if there's something deeper going on with this sermon with you, then let's get you some help to process that because um, you deserve it for yourself and you deserve it for everybody you say you love. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Jenkins and Ms. Grimes. Did you have I a just want to say one more one more thing? And that is there are black men doing this work. Yes, and there are. There, there, there wasn't anyone on this panel, but there are black men doing this mm -hmm. work. I want to elevate Archie Green and peel them them layers back right mm -hmm. now. Um, I want to elevate the work of 12 literary arts and um Daniel Gray Contar's work. I, yeah. There are men who are That's very right. activated. Um, and I am grateful for, for their presence in our community, for sure. Thank you. So this is, we've, we've gotten this question a few different ways, you know, um, and, and if there's a, um, maybe a, a brief way to say it, but really what role can white allies have in support of healing, starting the, the work, starting the work, right? Ms. Grimes, like we're, we're really at the base of that mountain um, with, with healing some of this racial trauma. And we're talking about people in the community, leadership roles, government, industry, you know, wherever we can, how do we start? Where, what, what do we do? All right, I'll take that. <clears throat> um, the first thing that I want to say is white people, you've got to do your own work around ending racism that does not include black people or other people of color. I'm gonna say it again, white people. <laughs> You've gotta do your own work. You've gotta do your own work. You've gotta recognize your own ancestors and your own history and your own lineage. And that has to come from an internal identity development process. You gotta read your own books. You can figure it out. You have the internet just like we do. You can figure it out. One thing that I wanna, so we have to do our own work internally. We have to commit to it. We have to understand that it is a journey, not a destination. We've got to understand that it's not going to happen just because two weeks, uh, you know, Black Lives is wide open. But this is not new for us. Those of us who are Black, those of us who uh, operate at multiple oppressed identities, what is happening, what is new to you is not new for us. So you have to put some respect on our names. You have to understand <laughs> that there are people who have been in this fight for a long time, generations of us, 
So when you enter in, enter in with that love and that grace, enter in wanting to learn, enter in wanting to serve. And the last thing that I want to say is something tangible, right? Something that we can all take back to our organizations today. We know that language is important. We understand that what we say matters. So a lot of people now want to get on the, the conversation around, I'm an anti-racist. That's good. I want you to be an anti-racist. But what I want you to do is I want you to strive for an integrated anti-oppressive framework because we can't talk about race in a vacuum. So when we talk about being an anti-racist, what does that really mean? That understands that race is a social construct that intersects with all these other identities and systems that we interact with on a daily basis. So if we really want to be an anti-racist, if we really want to get folks free, if we really want to know what we can do to be our part, we can begin to say the words like an integrated anti-oppressive framework, because that centers the most marginalized. In that way, we all win. Thank you, Dr. Arkey. Dr. Murray, did you have something? Yeah, I just want to um, piggyback off what, off what Dr. Arkey said. I think we all like waved the amen when she said, you have to do this work yourself. Um, and, and not only do you have to do the work yourself, it's selfish to ask us while we're grieving to help you. It's selfish. Don't do that. Now, what I'll also say along what you can do. So what we can do, and especially with, um, you know, white people who are working or around, I don't know, healthcare professionals, clinicians who are working with our black youth, um, people that have, you know, have black people interact with black people in any capacity, um, give them space, but also it's okay to acknowledge what is happening. Okay. Whenever you don't acknowledge it, people feel invisible. Um, so you have to at least say, um, you might not know, you could have, I don't know what to say, but I just, I'm here, you know, give us, give it, give black people space, but acknowledge. So, because to not acknowledge is, is really, really hurtful and invalidating. And, and, and so if you want to be helpful to, you have to at least acknowledge. Now don't push and question and pride and all of that, but acknowledge what's happening. And also I think Dr. Murray and what Dr. Arkey were saying is acknowledge, but don't ask for comfort in that same breath, right? That I'm really sorry this is happening to you. I feel so bad, right? I think that's really um, what I've heard a lot of the uh, the panelists really saying is, is, you know, this is not new for us. And we are working through our own trauma without having to bring you along now in, into this trauma as well. So thank you for that. There are so many questions we didn't get to. And I encourage listeners to um, tweet some of the questions to the panelists. I think everybody now is on Twitter. And so, um, you know, I, I imagine that each of you would be open to that. <laughs> so I'm going to on your behalf. And I'm following all of you. So I'm going to follow the conversation, too. But again, um, you know, I just want to make one final point with the data that, you know, each one of you made some sort of point that, um, you know, connection and being able to have those meaningful connections is so important. Yet we know that our black students are less likely than white students in high school and elementary school to feel like they matter in their community, to feel close to their people at, at school, to have a supportive adult and to get any um, appropriate help when they do start to have symptoms, right? They they're, tend to be labeled instead of having anxiety as having conduct problems or things. So I think I just want to bookmark that, that this is absolutely a problem and we could talk about this for hours. So on that note, um, 
um, I realize that we are we are just about out of time. So uh, does somebody, anybody have a, a final point they want to hammer home? Yes, Reverend Yeah, I, I just want to, um, uh, I put down there at the bottom, Rev CCJ, that's my handle on pretty much everything. I want to encourage people to go by my Instagram. There's a link tree there um, to that sermon that I preached when anxiety attacks. Um, it's very real. It's dealing very much with COVID. It's dealing very much with when Black Lives Matter. Um, and probably the other sermon is um, the one from Pentecost, um, which is entitled We Can't Breathe, um, where we're kind of doing this, this tension, this dichotomy between what we're hearing, these reports of I can't breathe, officer, take your knee off my neck, and the Ruah breath of God, the divinity of what does it mean for Christ to breathe on us and then for us to acknowledge divine breath in other people? Um, and what does it mean to be in a culture that's sucking the breath from us? So I just want to offer those as two resources um, that I have in my arsenal um, to help people. But if you just go to YouTube and you, it's like youtube.com backslash RevCCJ um, and you'll you'll be able to pull those up. But, but I wanna offer those as gifts to the community um, that I hope if you're not in counseling and you're feeling the weight of all of this will lead you um, to consider it and to understand that to really do the work. Because once you find the right counselor, man, it's, 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 it's so much better um, and to commit to that work. But, and thank you to my sisters, just each of you all just doing phenomenal work. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Ramirez, just for leading us uh, in this uh, critical, critical dialogue. And I, I hope that, that we'll be a better community and we'll be better Cleveland. Um, because while we're expecting white folks to do their work around racism, we're doing our work around mental health. Thank you. Dr. Arkey, you were waving your hand there in the background. Did you want to say something? Oh, no, I was just confirming okay. the message. <laughs> just making sure. <laughs> Okay. Thank you for having me today. I mean, there there was one question that we didn't get to, and maybe if anybody um, does have a resource, they can tweet it to City Club. But um, one of the audience members was asking, is there a hotline if you're feeling overwhelmed by racism that you could call like a 1-800 number? I'm not, I have not heard of that. I don't, if anybody knows, but um, perhaps if anybody even in the audience knows, maybe um, you could tweet that at City Club and we could share that as well. There is an app um, for meditation designed by people of color for people of color. Um, and I will find that it's on my phone somewhere in all my meditation apps. But that may be one where it's literally dealing with these issues and giving you kind of the come down. So I will share that with the City Club in hopes that they can get it out. That would be great. Thank you. So I am going to wrap us up here and I want to thank everyone. Thank the four of you absolutely for today's forum. This was incredible. And, um, you know, Dr. Arkey, Dr. Shamara Arkey, the co-chair for the Board of Trustees for Shooting Without Bullets, professor of Pan-African Studies at Kent State University and the founding curator of Sankofa Circle the Reverend Courtney Clayton Jenkins, senior pastor and teacher at South Euclid United Church of Christ, Habiba Grimes, CEO of the Positive Education Program, PEP, and Dr. Marcina Murray, clinical psychologist, director of behavioral health for the foster care program at the Metro Health System, and assistant professor of psychiatry, Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. And I just thank you. Thank you for this incredible yeah. panel. Um, so today's forum was sponsored by the Woodrow Foundation, and we appreciate their support of City Club programming. City Club virtual forums are sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation, the George Gunn Foundation, Key Bank, 
Nordson, Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC, and the many more generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on their website at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting their work when you make donations, contributions online, or become a member at cityclub.org. I'm Dr. Lisa Ramirez. Thank you for joining us today. Our forum is now closed, and I am going to close this up. Thank you.